2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I know we're still in January, and generally speaking, the year is still sort of beginning, And I thought to myself, this is still a good time to remind everyone what it means to be new. Particularly a new creation through Jesus Christ, as we see in verse 17. And I'm afraid that we lose our gratitude for this regeneration that God does in the lives of new believers And so, with the desire that we never lose this gratitude, I want us to focus on this passage this morning. I think it's pivotal. Back in 2013, Forbes ran an article entitled, How I Paid Off $90,000 in Debt in Three Years. Since you can go home and look up the article yourself, I'm not going to tell you how she did it. I will, however, read you an excerpt from the beginning, just to give you a sense of what $90,000 in debt feels like. Here are some excerpts of what she wrote. It's funny how you can do all the right things, go to college, get a job, and then one day wake up with crushing debt. I knew from the outset of my college search that my parents had limited funds, but that didn't stop me from attending the University of Maryland out of state, to get an undergraduate degree in anthropology, and the University of Tennessee, out of state, for my master's in nonprofit education. I didn't even try to get scholarships or grants. I funded both degrees with student loans, a common mistake. When student loans are being passed out, it's like free money. You don't grasp that you're going to be 23, earning a modest, modest income, while trying to pay back loans that are twice the total of your salary. On top of that, I put some of my living and student expenses on credit cards, entertainment, phone bills, groceries, as well as anything else that I didn't feel like I had enough money to cover. So by the time I got to my master's degree in 2007, I had accumulated tens of thousands in student loan debt and almost $9,000 in credit card debt. I was just 24 years old. After graduating, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I got a job at a nonprofit that paid $50,000 a year. I lived as though I didn't have any debt, however. I paid the minimum on my loans, spent $1,400 a month on a studio apartment in the fashionable DuPont Circle neighborhood. I went out with my friends a lot, spent $50 every weekend and night, attending countless happy hours. I honestly and foolishly thought everything was fine. 
Then one night, I went home and found the Department of Education's student loan site where you can pull up your debt. And when I plugged in those numbers into a spreadsheet, it was like a smack in the stomach. I owed almost $90,000. I want you to imagine that for a moment. Just think about that. You're living your life all through college, and then you get a job. You're a young working professional. Your entire future is ahead of you. You feel very inspired, and you have many aspirations. And all of a sudden, you sit down one morning or evening, and you discover you have $90,000 worth of debt, and you're making a salary, gross salary, of $50,000 a year. And after paying the bills, the numbers just don't add up, and the thought of repayment is quite crippling. Your mind begins to race as you try to figure out how you could pay it all back. And you realize you're going to have to work overtime, perhaps even pick up a second job, cut spending, cut down time with friends, family. In fact, you realize that much of your time has to now be reallocated to work so that you could pay back the debt. One pivotal point is that the debtor knows just how precious time off with family really is. It is a self-discovery of sorts of the truth found in Proverbs 22.7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Now, having imagined such debt, $90,000, almost 100k in debt, you could now imagine, if you could sort of put your place, you, your, your place in her shoes, sort of feel how that feels. And if while working hard to pay off all that debt, little by little, it almost feels as if you're just making drops in the bucket there because you have interest rates and everything else. Imagine suddenly a relative dies and leaves you with an inheritance that not only covers your debt, but leaves you with a surplus for you to live off of and invest. How would you feel? How appreciative would you be? Now, I'm not saying that's what happened to her. It didn't. She had to work it off. But just imagine if that happened. The question I would like to ask is, would the appreciation be greater than it would have been had you never fallen into harsh debt at all? And I think we all know the answer to that one. I think it's human nature to take for granted those things we have in abundance. But when there's lack, when there's scarcity of resources, and when there's harsh, back-breaking labor as a result of debt, that's when we truly value the, the price of a buck. I think a similar phenomenon occurs with us as Christians. Some of us have been in the church so long that Jesus is no longer treasured in our hearts as he ought to be. I think, yes, we're aware that Christ died for our sins, but somewhere along the way, we began to stop treasuring him and began taking him for granted Others of us are so badly indoctrinated with the voices all around us in our society that we've come as far as viewing Jesus as merely another religious choice. Jesus is simply a God among other gods. 
all equally valid and all leading to the same creator. Some of us have forgotten the fact that it was Jesus himself who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. And due to our lack of faith in those words by Christ, we're now stuck in a quagmire of spiritual indifference and materialism. And even if on paper you don't believe that, our day to day might show that that's sort of where we lean. There's no longer a sense of urgency to get the gospel out to our friends, our coworkers, to the nations. And we simply loiter our precious days on earth embroiled in trivial pursuits that at the end won't matter at all. So many of us have forgotten about the Great Commission because we've forgotten the price paid by our Savior to cover our massive debt. And some of us don't treasure our Savior because we don't know how massive our debt truly was. If you're not treasuring Jesus this morning... Ask yourself, how did you get yourself into this spiritual state? How did you get here? I mean, the question is analogous to the one you ask in marriage. If there is no love between the, the, between, um, the married couple, the question ought to be, how did we get here and how can we fix that? Perhaps more importantly, how do you get out of such a spiritual funk? And my goal this morning with this message is very simple. One straightforward point. I deeply hope that each one of you will leave here this morning treasuring Jesus. And I mean really treasuring Jesus. I said that's really what the goal of this message is. I would like you to start off this year treasuring Jesus and making sure that that's what you're going to do 365 days all through 2018. I know it's sort of a cliche, but I love it when Christians remind each other with the old, uh, God is good all the time and all the time, God is good. I love hearing that. It never gets old. And I think the reason why we fall into temptation and sin is because we forget that one simple fact. We forget that God is good. And just like Adam and Eve, we believe the lie that sin will provide us with a better future and greater joy. And when we believe that lie, that is when we fall into sin. When we forget that God is good. It sounds so simple, I get it. But I think our choices show us that there are times we really doubt that simple phrase, God is good. Remembrance, therefore, is a key part of healthy spirituality. Maybe you're in a tough spot this morning and your heart is slowly being filled with anxiety. I want you to go home sometime today, maybe even tomorrow. Find a quiet spot. Take a few minutes to pray and reflect upon all the times God has delivered you in the past. Think about all the times you cried out to God and how God has always come through for you. In other words, I want you to simply do one thing. Go home and think about the goodness of your God. Amen? We can do that. We can all do do that, right? I believe the good Lord knew that we would be forgetful people. In the Old Testament, God knew that Israel would constantly forget their divine deliverance from Egyptian slavery. 
So he gave them Passover. The annual Passover was supposed to be a reminder <coughs> just how poor they were and in that it was Almighty God who delivered them, enriched them, and continued to sustain them. In other words, the Passover was a regular reminder of God's amazing goodness. Likewise, in the New Testament, God knew we would forget about the costly sacrifice of His Son, and so He gave us the communion. The ordinance was specifically given to us so that we could remember. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five to 26 Jesus says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now pause and think about that for a moment. Isn't it strange, perhaps even morbid, that as Christians we are called to regularly remember something as grotesque and terrible as a crucifixion? Ever stopped and thought about that? Why does God have us again and again remember something so horrible? He does it so we would never forget his love. Well, how does that remind us of his love? The bloody cross reminds us just how vast our debt was, how costly the sacrifice of Christ was, and how deep the love of God is for you and me. In this light, the biblical doctrines of humanity's sinful condition, the death of Christ, and, yes, the doctrine of hell, are all interconnected. It is when we don't believe in the horrors of hell or in the serious reality of the debt caused by our sins, that's when we begin to diminish the value of our Savior. Do you see how all three are interconnected? The woman at the, in the story that I opened with, at the outset of my message, she never sat down to reconcile her financial records until that fateful day when she discovered she had $90,000 worth of debt. She was in despair when she finally did so and discovered she was in such a large hole. In business, the term reconciliation refers to the keeping of financial or other records in balance, in agreement, and accurate. When our spending is not reconciled with our checkbooks, then we have a major accounting problem. If the discrepancy is big enough, personal bankruptcy ensues. Marriages suffer because of financial hardships. Children's lives are changed. If you're a government cardholder and such discrepancies occur on the job, then you, you might not only be out of a job eventually, but you might even land yourself in prison. On a much greater level, the same truths hold for our souls. Sin creates a massive discrepancy between us and God. You see, God is completely holy, and that is what is at center of Christianity. At the center of Christianity is a God who cries out to his people, be holy as I am holy. And since God is holy and perfect, there is a massive problem when he compares sinful humanity against himself. We are stained with sin. 
The woman in the opening story did not know just how massive her debt was. She was not aware of her problem, but that did not change the fact that she was truly in trouble. Likewise, there are many unbelievers today walking around without the slightest realization of how massive their debt is. Although many at least recognize that they're sinners, many at least recognize, I am a debtor against God and far from perfect, they nevertheless don't have a good grasp of just how massive their debts are because they often compare themselves to, say, Hitler or Osama bin Laden. And they think they're not that bad. And people all over the world, therefore, are in desperate need of a proper reconciliation with God. How desperate is that need, however? The late theologian R.C. Sproul, who just passed away, had this to say about the realities of, of the horrors of hell and God's impending wrath. I want you to listen. Quote, Almost all the biblical teaching about hell comes from the lips of Jesus. It is this doctrine, perhaps more than any other, that strains even the Christian's loyalty to the teachings of Christ. Modern Christians have pushed the limits of minimizing hell in an effort to sidestep or soften Jesus' own teaching. The Bible describes hell as a place of outer darkness, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal separation from the blessings of God, a prison, a place of torment where the worm does not turn or die. Furthermore, Dr. Sproul clears up this popular misunderstanding that hell is separation from God. You've probably heard that before. Hell is separation from God. That's simply not true. He writes, a breath of relief is usually heard when someone declares hell is a symbol for separation from God. To be separated from God for eternity is no great threat, however, to the impenitent person. The ungodly want nothing more than to be separated from God. If you hate God, you will love being separated from God. Their problem in, in, their problem in hell will not be separation from God. It will be the presence of God that will torment them. In hell, God will be present in the fullness of his divine wrath. He will be there to exercise his just judgment of the damned. They will know him as an all-consuming fire. Now, as uncomfortable as those words may sound, unless we truly understand what awaits those who die in the debt of sin, we will not have the same sort of love mission, urgency, and appreciation for the new creation as the apostle did in our chapter today. Friends, let me be very clear on this. We have a great Savior who did the unthinkable in dying for sinners. And without a proper reconciliation to God, hell is where we're headed. God's holiness necessitates either hell or the cross of Christ. And so it is no wonder that one could literally almost hear the sense of desperation in Paul's voice as he writes verse 20. Look at verse 20. He writes, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the word implore here could be literally translated perhaps better with the word beg. We beg you on behalf of Christ. 
This man was literally begging people to turn to God. I have to be honest with myself. When was the last time I had that sort of urgency when I shared Jesus with somebody? Now, this term reconciliation, you'll see it over and over again, multiple times, even in today's passage and in other letters like the, the epistle of Romans to, uh, to the Romans. This is a uniquely Pauline term, and it is descriptive of God's saving activity in Christ. Today's passage accomplishes three things for us. First, it gives us the grounds for Paul's ministry. Paul was an ambassador for Christ because he himself was already reconciled with God. He was a new creation and the old had passed away. Gone was the Saul who persecuted Christians. Gone was the Saul who worked so hard to earn his own salvation. Gone was the self-righteous man who depended on his own righteousness. And I want you to be sure of this. Before you go out trying to win people for Jesus, before you go out trying to do good in this world, friend, make sure that you personally know Jesus yourself. I hope that all the good that we do in our lifetime is simply a result of us knowing Jesus. Because if it's not, all is in vain. Second, this passage gives us the result of Paul's reconciliation with God. Because Paul was reconciled with God, therefore he went out seeking to reconcile the world to God. When you and I are born again, God puts a firm and unquenchable desire within us to bring people to Jesus. And like Paul, we go out to beg the world to be reconciled to God. Additionally, Christ himself has given you a commission. He's given you the permission, the authority to go out and tell the world about him. Look at verse 18. God, through Christ, reconciled believers to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What an amazing thought. What an amazing thought. We are entrusted with the task of reconciling people with God. I can't think of a higher work. Third, this message gives us the substance of Paul's message. Essentially, be reconciled to God is a summary statement of what? Of the gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel's four major points. Easily could be encapsulated. God, man, Jesus, decision. God is holy. All humans are sinners who deserve hell. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, died for our sins and rose again from the dead. And he, however, you have to make a decision. You have to personally repent from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins on the cross. And if you do that, when you believe in Him personally as your Lord, God, and Savior, you have eternal life. That's the gospel. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. But the minute that you, the moment that you believe in that gospel, you are reconciled with God. And it is this message that Paul preached. When he cried out, be reconciled to God, it is the gospel that he was declaring. Fourth and finally, this passage, passage lets us know who we represent. Look at the confident declaration in verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. And again later, we implore you on behalf of Christ. You know, when, when we think about ambassadors, we think about uh, 
perhaps the Secretary of State, when you represent the greatest nation in the world, you walk with a certain air of confidence. How much more should we walk with that confidence when we represent Christ? When we go out with the gospel, we are virtually an extension of Jesus Christ. Wherever we go, we represent Christ. And whenever we share the gospel, it is as if God is making his appeal through us. Yes, he could have chosen angels or visions, but God chose to make his appeal through ordinary Christians like you and me. And if you choose to be, you can be God's ambassador, operating under God's authority. Again, I can think of no greater purpose in life. In closing, a pastor once wrote, Life is a test, life is a trust, and life is a temporary assignment. At the end of your life on earth, you will be evaluated and then rewarded according to how well you handled what God entrusted you to do. And that means everything you do, even simple daily chores, therefore, have eternal implications. If you treat everything as a trust, God promises three rewards in eternity. First, you'll receive God's affirmation. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Good job. Second, you will receive a promotion, and you will be given greater responsibility in eternity. The Bible says, I will put you in charge of many things, of greater things, because of your faithfulness with the lesser on earth. And finally, third, you will be honored with a celebration. Come and share your master's joy, is what the Bible says. You will be honored with a celebration. And today we learned that Paul worked hard reconciling people to God as an ambassador for King Jesus. Yet on earth, he wasn't treated as an ambassador. But he didn't let that discourage him because he knew that his reward was in the life to come. This world is a temporary assignment. I once read the story of a retiring missionary coming home to America on the same boat as the President of the United States. Cheering crowds, military band, Red carpet, banners, and the media welcomed the president home, but the missionary slipped off the boat unnoticed. Feeling self-pity and resentment, he began to complain to God. Then suddenly God gently reminded him, But son, you're not home yet. Friends, you're, we're all not home yet. Until God calls us home, let us therefore be busy imploring others to be reconciled to God. The world may not count this as a worthy task, but one day when you get home, you'll receive your reward. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word today. What a message. And as we begin a new year,